Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Acts chapter 6. We study the book of Acts on uh, Sunday evening now as we on Sunday evening make our way through the Bible from Genesis to uh, Revelation. As we come to chapter 6, we of course leave chapter 5 and the theme of chapter 5 you might remember was uh, purity and the importance of purity within the early church as God drove that lesson home uh, in the example of Ananias and Sapphira not only to the early church but in putting it in the scriptures to drive home the importance of that uh, in any church all the way through uh, to the end of the age and now he shifts gears the Holy Spirit does in uh, chapter 6 and he moves from that theme of purity to the theme of uh, establishing uh, priorities in our lives as Christians based upon God's call upon our lives and then what is required to stay within our calling and within our gifting uh, in the midst of so much need not only in the world but so much need so often within the body of Christ or a local church uh, itself now in those days <clears throat> Luke writes, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews uh, by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So we see now in Acts chapter 2, there's a, this is a time of great growth and multiplication within uh, the early church. People are being saved by the thousands at this point. Uh, God is adding uh, daily to the church such as should be saved and in uh, chapter 2 now it's gone into multiplication and anytime you have a church that is multiplying uh, based upon God's favor as was happening in that early church you're going to have growing pains and this is kind of their first uh, growing pain that occurs here in a dispute that occurred related to the daily distribution you might remember that earlier in the book of Acts that in the early church this love that Christian had for one, Christians had for one another that those that had resources, financial material resources were bringing voluntarily those resources to uh, the apostles. The apostles then used those monies in order to provide for uh, the necessities of life for those that were poor among uh, uh, the Christians, the body of Christ there in uh, Jerusalem. You might imagine that some, by virtue of becoming a Christians, were cut off from uh, their jobs in Jerusalem, ostracized from their families, in addition to all of the things that anybody can hit in life that can put us in that, that uh, kind of a place of need. And so there was this daily uh, distribution in which it appears that some uh, uh, food was distributed on a daily basis uh, to the widows as we're told here uh, the widows that were a part of that early uh, church now in the scriptures and uh, in, in not only in ancient times but today the two most vulnerable populations in uh, in the world are the population that God uh, was always careful to tell his people to take good care of and that was uh, the fatherless orphans and the widows and in the in that ancient culture of the ancient world 
to be, uh, to be a widow uh, was to essentially become uh, destitute if you didn't have any further family. We can understand these widows to be without broader family, that they are kind of all alone in the world because they're brought under the provision of the local church. You might remember that Paul wrote to Timothy in terms of the pastoral epistles for establishing who comes under uh, the, the material, physical support of a local church. And he said that, Uh, If any widow uh, has uh, extended family, that extended family is to take responsibility for the widow and take care of her so that she doesn't become a responsibility of the church. And he said that any Christian that is in that family that fails to do that is worse than an unbeliever, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of Even non-Christians know how to take care of their extended family in that way. So the fact that they're receiving food, a a daily distribution on a daily basis, indicates that they are all alone in the world for their sustenance and uh, very, very uh, vulnerable. And and so that's the uh, acuteness of the need and, and the situation. Now, this uh, complaint arose as it relates to this daily distribution and uh, those that were uh, associated with the Hellenistic Jews uh, and the uh, Hebrew Jews, uh, they had a contention and the Hellenistic Jews, the family members of the Hellenistic Jews complained that the Hebrew Jews were getting a larger amount in the daily distribution than the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, they're all Jews that have become uh, Christians, put their faith in Jesus for salvation. But the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who were raised in uh, Greek culture. And so they, uh, for the most part, would have spent a good portion of their life, if not all of their life, outside of the land of Israel, in different parts of the Roman Empire. They like uh, the, the Greek uh, and Gentile uh, culture, the luxury of it, the, uh, the openness of it, and they became uh, a part of it. The Hebrew uh, Jews, uh, they were the Jews that stayed in Israel. They're suspicious of the Gentiles. Gentile culture even looked down on Gentiles and Gentile culture. And they would only speak Hebrew. The Hellenistic Jews, uh, or, or they would only speak Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews in that day. And the Hellenistic Jews would be a little short on their ability to speak Aramaic and they would speak fluently in Greek. But here they are now. They have become one is part of the body of Christ. And uh, these two that probably apart from becoming Christians would uh, desire to have very little to do with one another. And yet here they are now Christians. They're united in their need. And this complaint that is being made here uh, by the Hellenistic Jews that, hey, uh, the Jews from a Greek culture are getting shortchanged. They're being looked down upon here. Uh, that complaint was a legitimate complaint. And so, so they were. So all of this was under the oversight of, of the apostles. But the apostles were not doing the actual 
distribution of this on a, a daily uh, basis. You might imagine that some of these uh, widows coming from the Hellenistic culture back into Israel, you say, well, why in the world would they come back to Jerusalem and into Israel? Well, even a, a, a Jewish person raised and, and spending their life in Greek culture in the larger Roman Empire, uh, when they would come to die, would want to typically uh, die in Israel or to be buried in Jerusalem. And so not an un unusual situation. You notice that it wasn't the widows themselves who uh, complained, but it was the larger Hellenistic Jewish culture and community that complained on their uh, behalf. And that word complain is kind of a nice way of putting uh, what it actually means is they grumbled and they they murmured about this, uh, this situation. And we're going to see again in a moment that this, their concern was legitimate, uh, uh, but this was a very, very immature and irresponsible way to deal with a legitimate need among Christians in uh, the body of Christ. And so they immediately begin grumbling. They immediately be begin complaining uh, about the situation. Anybody that is uh, familiar at all with the Old Testament uh, will understand that God really dislikes complaining and murmuring among uh, His people. And He strongly judged it repeatedly in, in the Old Testament. It is a leaven in the body of Christ. It is an uh, unredemptive, uh, unworthy way of communicating about a problem. And when we murmur or complain about a problem as Christians within a church, or what, uh, that, that, that's the strict context of it here, um, there is behind that kind of murmuring and that kind of, of complaining, uh, there is this, it assumes this, there's a personal, deliberate, and malicious motive behind this uh, neglect. And so they begin to uh, misjudge the hearts of the apostles who were overseeing this. The apostles are going to agree with them as soon as the need is brought to them. But grumbling and complaining is very different than bringing a need in a local church uh, to those so they can be, be made aware, aware of it and say, um, uh, this is how I see it, and this is what's going on. What can be done about that? And that's not how uh, this was uh, uh, dealt, uh, dealt with by them. It's also murmuring and complaining is usually the mark of someone who has waited uh, way too long uh, to speak up about something constructive in a constructive way. So now I'm frustrated, now I'm angry, and now I'm going to deal with it in this uh, carnal way. And the best thing to do is just take a legitimate need and then with humility in our lives uh, to just seek to understand the situation a little better uh, through a discussion and then ask somebody in a position of authority what might be done to uh, resolve it. And so often when it's done that way, as would happen with the apostles here, the reaction will be, wow, we didn't realize that. And you're right. Uh, this is a problem, and it needs to be addressed, and let's seek the Lord about how to uh, address that. And so uh, that was the correct way. This is the incorrect way, and, uh, and so 
this is the dynamic of what is happening. Somehow it comes to the attention of verse 2, then the 12, that is the apostles, uh, they hear about it, and they summon the multitude of the disciples. They summon the whole church. Uh, Hellenistic Jews, uh, Hebrew Jews, there's not going to be this kind of secret thing going on. They're going to bring everybody in and, uh, and uh, address it. And they said, uh, it is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God, them speaking as apostles, and serve these tables. It isn't uh, wise for us to leave uh, the, the uh, ministry of the Word of God. After all, the ministry of the Word of God through the apostles and others was what produced this multiplication uh, of people getting saved. And so you don't want the growth of something to then cause the leaders to abandon the very thing that God is using to produce that growth. And they, they recognize the danger, the tendency uh, of doing exactly that. And so they said, we can't minister the Word. We can't be what we're called to be as leaders is looking at the spiritual needs of the body of Christ and then still take care of this uh, a, a distribution uh, every single day. And so then the 12, they summoned uh, the multitude. They said this, and this was their solution. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint uh, over this business. Uh, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry uh, of the Word. So they recognized that it was a legitimate, legitimate complaint. This was not done on purpose. Uh, it was an oversight, a consequence of growth in the early church uh, by the apostles. And uh, things had just reached a, uh, a growth size related to that early church that uh, it was impossible for the apostles now to do everything or even to uh, have their finger on the pulse of, of everything. And this was an indication that, of that place. They couldn't wear all the hats uh, that, they, that they once uh, wore. So the meeting was, was called, and two things needed to have come out of this meeting. First, the Hellenistic Jews uh, could not continue to be neglected in the daily distribution. That needed to be fixed. And then second, the apostles could not be pulled away uh, from their primary call upon their lives uh, as a, a part of the solution to, uh, to that need and to that neglect. And so the apostles communicated, we can no longer do all of these other things now uh, with the size of things and stay faithful to prayer and to the ministry uh, of the Word. And uh, again, it wouldn't make sense to leave what was producing uh, this growth and, and this need, and they uh, recognized it. And it's not an easy thing always uh, to recognize in our own lives, or recognize certainly for leaders to recognize it uh, in the body of Christ. So often there is something that, uh, some gift or some calling that is upon a person, say, as a pastor or as an elder, God is blessing that, it's enlarging, and then all of these other demands uh, now uh, come in because more and more people are being impacted. And one of the first 
uh, uh, reactions to it can be, then I need to put aside uh, these other things in order to take care of all of these problems myself, rather than recognizing that this is a need, this kind of thing requires the enlargement of leadership within a local body. And this enlargement of leadership within the early church is going to take the form of the establishment of the office of a deacon. Uh, that word uh, uh, dionakios that's used here, a Greek word that's uh, diakonos, is used repeatedly in the passage. We get our uh, English word deacon from it, and so the office of a deacon is established here uh, in, in chapter uh, 6. And so the primary focus here and an important revelation, not just for church leaders, but also for the individual members of a church as well, that the primary focus of uh, senior leadership for sure is to be prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the ministry of the Word means public teaching like I'm doing right now, uh, private teaching in terms of counseling or in small groups, home to, uh, house to house, whatever is required in terms of, of uh, discipling people in, uh, in the Word of, of God. And so no pastor can be expected to do everything uh, in a church. And I, and I want you to know as I lay these things out tonight that I don't consider this now or has ever been that, that, uh, that kind of, of a church with that kind of expectation. And uh, the idea that the, the pastor has to be at every single meeting, at every single uh, administrative meeting, at every single event, every single, every single, every single, and then uh, and, and make room for all of it. And prayer and the ministry of the Word is to be the primary, primary focus uh, of his life. And he's, he is, this passage allows him to... Mm, uh, maintain that as the focus of his life guilt-free. And that's a big deal. And that's a big deal. I can't speak for anybody else that's a senior pastor, but I feel as guilty as a Jewish mother uh, over not being able to do all of the things that I want to do and be involved in every personal contact within, within the church and a congregation. And it takes a passage like this that te to tell me, quite apart from everybody else, that no, you need to maintain uh, that focus and to maintain that focus guilt-free. I'll use other people to do these other things within uh, the body of, of Christ. Otherwise, if, you, if we leave that primary focus of the ministry of the Word and prayer, uh, then the uh, pastor becomes a jack of all trade and a master of none, as the old saying goes. And uh, uh, it, it isn't that a person isn't uh, willing to do anything and everything as a pastor. It's the recognition that he can't. There is no one who will achieve uh, uh, any kind of standard of um, acceptable standard, uh, much less a standard of excellence in any area in life without there being focus and a disciplined focus in terms of where a person's time and, uh, and energy uh, goes and a focus on understanding the priorities uh, of a person's life and, and then 
uh, staying within those, those parameters and uh, as their main focus. And so this allows the pastor, uh, biblically, uh, a, a very uh, helpful way of being able to say no to other things, even needs that are outside of, of their calling. It doesn't mean that the needs don't need to be addressed. Uh, the, these leaders are going to address the problem, but they uh, should feel more than free to, to delegate those needs to others in the church who are called uh, to do these other things and are usually uh, much more gifted by God in order to handle those things in order that they might uh, 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 meet those needs. Everyone within the church, uh, including the senior pastor or any pastor, we're willing to do anything in a pinch, but generally um, it takes some determination to stay uh, focused on the one or two or three things that God has called us to uniquely do within a local church that cannot be delegated to um, anyone uh, else. And so as needs arise within a church, typically uh, it, it will require the wise expansion of leadership and that's exactly what we see here in our passage. One of the many things that I, I am thankful uh, for concerning this church family is that you have allowed me since day one to devote the majority of my time to these two things, uh, to the ministry of the Word and uh, to, uh, to prayer. And, uh, and, and have been, I, I can put enough guilt on myself related to that, uh, and, uh, and thankfully you didn't put that on me as well, especially in uh, the early days and feeling guilty about not being able to do everything for everyone. The Bible for me is not an easy book to understand. Um, it has a depth that leaves our heads spinning. I mean, we we study it, we learn it, the degree that we can, we grow in our understanding of the depth of the Word of God, but to understand not only what God is saying in a passage, but why is He saying this? How does it apply to our lives? What is the essence of this, this passage? What is God trying to communicate to us? That doesn't come uh, easily uh, to me. I don't know that it comes easy for uh, anyone else. And uh, I am not slack in that regard of trying to seek the Lord's mind and study and figure these things out between me and Him in the course of the week. And I always look at it as that time that I spend in prayer in the study of the Word. I always I consider it a privilege, but I consider it an immense responsibility that I have the privilege of being able to sit down at a desk and have all access to all kinds of materials, uh, the best library that I could put uh, together, and the ability to sit down and look at a passage and to study it and to prepare a sermon from it for hours in the course of a week, knowing that virtually everyone I'm about to stand before on the coming Sunday does not have that luxury because of all of your responsibilities in life. And so I am able on behalf of everyone to be able to try and see what is it that is here 
and then bring that out uh, for uh, all of us in, in, by God's grace on a weekly uh, basis. It's in the early days, I had different margins than I do now. There's something about being uh, a young man, and um, you might remember if you're a little bit older like I am, waking up in the morning and uh, in bed and then leaping from the bed uh, to start uh, the day. Uh, now you, and, you, and you gave no thought to it. Okay, what's going to be involved in leaping out of this bed, racing to the kitchen and getting whatever going? Now uh, you wake up and you realize you're still alive and uh, you roll over on one side and then you get your legs over the side of the bed and then with a groan you get up. There's a point it comes in life in which every movement comes with a sound. And, uh, and you look at, if you're younger and you think, that's absolutely crazy. You wait, you wait, it's, it's coming your way. And uh, you'll remember, hey, that guy, he knew what he was talking about. But in, the, in, in, in those younger years where um, I could uh, do everything during the day, even out of guilt, things I had no business being involved in, I could still stay up and, and pray and, uh, and engage in the ministry of the Word into the early hours of the morning, sometime into the, sometimes into the very early hours of Saturday morning before getting a couple hours of sleep and coming then on the, on the Sunday. And of course, you get older and those margins are gone uh, in, in our, uh, in our uh, uh, lives and because they're not sustainable and uh, this passage saves us from all of the guilt of it. I think the modern demands upon uh, pastors are very, very different in our culture uh, because most often they're corporate. Uh, it's a corporate mentality related to the church, a business kind of model in people's minds. And so to meet with everyone, to uh, visit everyone, to fill every request that anybody might have and uh, until finally a breaking point is reached and nobody can live up to that. And so either the pastor is going to crash and burn or the congregation is going to go unprayed for or the congregation is going to be fed week in and week out uh, sermons that were prepared with the leftovers uh, of time or sermons delivered on the fly on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or, or Wednesday uh, nights. And that's a sure way to bring uh, uh, God's growth to any local church to a, a screeching uh, halt. And so... Uh, and, and when I say this, I want to be very, very careful for anybody that is listening. I, and here, I am not talking about the bivocational pastor. The pastor who uh, pastors a church and he works a full-time job as well. God gives those men a very special grace and an anointing upon their life to be able to do that. I'm talking about where... Uh, these are choices that we can make in our lives in, in our Christian service. They're doing the hardest thing of all. There's an old illustration uh, uh, that uh, speaks about the uh, unrealistic expectations that can be placed upon a, uh, a pastor that I think speaks to this very, very nicely. And uh, I read it years ago. The ideal pastor preaches exactly 20 minutes with an hour's content. 
He condemns sin, but never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight and also serves as the church janitor. He makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, and donates $30 a week to the church. He's 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. He's a strong leader, and yet he follows everybody's advice. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He makes 15 house calls a day, regularly visits the hospital, and is always in his office. The perfect pastor always has time for the uh, church council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the lost. If your pastor does not measure up, Simply send this, send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. And then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Uh, have uh, faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three months. And so like all humor, it's got a, a, a sense of a ring of truth to it. I do remember that um, when in the earlier years of the church here, and you'll excuse me for talking a little bit about myself. Well, let me start back when I was six years old. And, um, and somewhere in there, I lo- earlier than that, I lost my first tooth and, and the fairy, tooth fairy. So just kidding. But when, when the church started in, in Modesto back in 1985, and uh, we had been driving between Napa and um, uh, uh, in here for a year and a half prior to that. But there was a, a group that met of pastors in the community on a, a monthly basis, and it was called the Greater Modesto Ministerial Association. And God was really using that association at that time. It was great fellowship. Uh, between the pastors. It built a lot of bridges because there were a lot more divisions in the body of Christ denominationally, non-denominationally, doctrinally than I think that there are uh, now. And it was, it was a wonderful time to get together uh, to talk about uh, the calling and then to spend some time in prayer together. And, uh, and, and, and then I was over at the Chevron station on Sisk uh, over there, Sisk and Briggs Moore, and I was filling up with gas, and then in next to me pulled, uh, pulled in one of the pastors that I had met at these, uh, these meetings, and we had kind of struck up a little bit of an acquaintance. I liked him, and uh, he caught me, and he said, how come you're not uh, attending these meetings anymore? He said, you know, you have a reputation within the community of being aloof concerning the other pastors. And I, I felt that uh, that was unfair. Anybody could have come to me and asked me why I didn't attend those uh, meetings any longer. I said, well, let me fill you in on this. I, I was so getting buried under the, the needs of the church at that time that I made kind of a commitment with the Lord that uh, any th- I would not um, uh, introduce or continue any outside practice uh, other than the church uh, that would put pressure on my personal devotional time with the Lord, that it would not crowd that out, my time in the Word myself and then in prayer. 
And I said, this meeting moved into that category. Nothing wrong with the meeting. But that, that's how I had to prioritize here uh, um, on this. And I explained that to him. And I, I said, uh, and also let him know what he, I'm sure he already knew, but I'm not just the pastor of a church. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I have other relationships in my family to maintain. I have meaningful relationships in my life and healthy relationships that need to be uh, maintained. I have to fill, uh, put gas in my car. I have to mow the lawn. All of these things take time. There's no conspiracy here at all. And so often that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of pressure can be put uh, on us in that way and I explained that to him, and he understood uh, completely. All of this can sound very, very uh, self-serving, but I don't want it to be uh, that. But I, I, it, I simply want to say whether it's me as your pastor or any of the pastors here or any other pastor that you're going to have in the course uh, of your life, it does need to be said. The, the calling as a pastor in a church, when someone is diligent, it is a workaholic's dream. You can work yourself to death. And if we don't heed the counsel of this passage, we will work ourselves to death. And then what would have been, how good would that have been for the early church if that's what the apostles did, uh, took it on themselves to take care of it, rather than enlarging uh, the, uh, the leadership. And so there's always an unending flow of problems and demands and needs in the body of Christ in a local church. That's exactly how uh, it, it ought to be. And a passage like this is really a gift to pastors uh, to, and an encouragement to keep those, those uh, priorities of God supreme within our within our calling, and then to make whatever changes outside of that are necessary uh, to protect that. And God will honor that, and He honors that uh, here. The apostles, you notice there in verse 3, they asked the multitude to seek out seven men uh, to whom this physical need could be delegated to or given to uh, so they could continue in the ministry of prayer and uh, the study of the Word of God. And so they addressed the problem, and they provided the solution, but they did not engage the problem personally or physically themselves. And again, here we have the formal uh, establishment of the office of, uh, of a uh, deacon. The primary focus of an elder, the office of an elder in a church, is the things that are overtly spiritual associated with the Word of God um, and prayer in a local church. The emphasis and the focus of a deacon is to address and take care of the physical things within the church. Neither one is more or less spiritual than the other. Uh, it, it, there are two, two callings that God places on upon a person's life, and they're both uh, wonderful callings when, uh, when they uh, are there. We're going to see in, in just a moment here where God, uh, Stephen is unique. Philip is going to be one of these seven as well. We'll see them further into the book of Acts. 
they are going to be numbered among these seven deacons, but then their ministry is going to enlarge even uh, on top of that ministry uh, uh, as a deacon, and God uh, can do that. You notice the requirements that God gives for, and the requirements that God gave to the apostles for serving tables, handling this, handling this food distribution on a daily basis. He said that they were there in verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. He, he doesn't say, um, listen, I need seven guys, and any seven will do. Uh, no, he, there's, a, there's a requirement here. There's a standard. And, and here are, are, are the requirements. Uh, they are to come from among you. That is, they were to be Christians, born again, uh, men of good reputation. They had to uh, uh, walk the talk, not only in church, but out in, in the community, have a good reputation, live the life in both places. They had to be men full of the Holy Spirit and then men full of wisdom. They're wise with godly uh, wisdom. So they're able to look at a situation like this and, and, um, and the apostles were not looking for laborers. They hand it over to them and because they have wisdom, they can figure out what is the best way to handle this, uh, this problem. And so, uh, wise with godly wisdom. They not only know what to do, but they know how to do it in a way that is right and looks like uh, Christ. There are some that are willing to do anything. And God bless the servant who is willing to do um, uh, anything, uh, but they have to be told everything. And the office of a deacon is, here is someone who has a gifting that is beyond servanthood. Uh, there's an element of wisdom and an element of leadership involved as well. You give it to them, and they figure it out, and they get it uh, done. And again, not everyone meets that requirement within a local church. Not everyone met that requirement, those requirements in the early church. But seven of them uh, uh, did, and, uh, and, and, uh, and God wants His people, when, whether they're being ministered to by elders or by deacons or anyone in a position of authority, God wants His people being taken care of by truly spiritual people. Even to serve the daily distribution of food required this kind of godly character for that to be turned uh, over uh, to them. And uh, the office of a deacon is not one that's to be given to uh, someone in order to keep, uh, you know, rich but carnal people attending the church. It's a, it's a necessary office and ministry within a church, and I think it's deeply satisfying to anyone, obviously, who's called to it. When I became a new Christian, this is going to be all about me tonight, by the way. Sorry about that. But when I became a a new Christian or got walking with the Lord um, back in, uh, in, in 1980 or so. Um, I, uh, uh, they, after a while, I was made a deacon at Calvary Chapel of Napa. And so I started to attend. And as I was attending, I noticed that every time I come into this sanctuary or other places on the grounds, there's no litter on the ground. 
Everything is vacuumed. All of the bulletins are picked up. There's no old communion cups uh, in, in the, the racks. Everything is immaculate. Everything is, is uh, washed and mopped and cleaned and ready for the next service. And so after really a short period of time, just a matter of weeks, I went to one of the guys that looked like he knew something about this, and I said, um, I don't know how all of this happens, but I'd like to uh, uh, do my part in this. And he said, well, great, just come an hour before the service, be willing to stay an hour after the service, and we'll keep you busy. And so I started to do that, and they did uh, keep uh, us busy, uh, me busy. And then after a while, I was uh, made a deacon in, uh, in that uh, church. And uh, all of that continued, all of the taking care of the vacuuming and the cleaning and the mopping and, the, and getting all children's church ready and everything for the next service. All of that happened. Um, I spent plenty of time uh, at the back door of the sanctuary, uh, opening it for people to come in, letting people go out, having people yell at me every conceivable thing that a Christian can say to you at a back door because something didn't go uh, right for them. And so uh, I've, I've been screamed at by Christians plenty, both men and women. And, uh, and in that place, though, I look back so fondly upon being a deacon. It was, there's something wonderful, a camaraderie occurred in our lives as deacons that was just unspoken, kind of just a band of brothers in this regard, and to be able to have the facility ready for them. And they come in, and they have God's people. They may or may not even notice that the place is immaculate for them and prepared for them, like somebody cares. Jesus said, He does all things well. And to see them come in, every single physical need being met for them, so that they could come into the sanctuary or the children's church and give their full attention to God. And then to stand in uh, a very anonymous kind of position in the church and to experience the joy of being able to serve God's people in, in that way. And I loved uh, my days of, of being uh, a deacon and working behind the scenes in that, in that way. And all of that happens in this church week in and week out, day in and day out as well. And it's the deacons and those who serve with the deacons that make all of that to, uh, to happen. Now, some of you, and the reason I, I go into this in this way, some of you may have that call upon your life. And so, to step out in that, not to step out and say, listen, I'd like to be a deacon, but to step out and say, what can I do around here that will make uh, this an undistracted, blessed environment on a physical level for people to come in and worship the Lord? And we can keep you busy. And so, to approach one of the pastors related to uh, to that and to be uh, pulled into that. There's a whole world of people who say, don't you ever put me in a lectern and to teach a Bible study in public, that would uh, terrify me. But I love that, and I love that aspect uh, of it, and it's a very, very uh, satisfying calling and, uh, a, and a rewarding calling when He calls us uh, to that. And so it's something to be prayerful about 
uh, in, our, in our own lives. There's always the looking to expand uh, leadership in a local church, but the uh, criteria, the spiritual criteria, uh, needs to be met there as well. So sometimes you can come in to uh, a church like this, and you can look and say, and I'm not saying you do, but it's easy to look around and say, that got wired. I come in here, I don't see any needs. I mean, if, if there was garbage dumped all the way through the fellowship hall, then maybe I would volunteer uh, for helping out a little bit because I'd see the need. And so we can assume, oh, that's, that's where I think God has called me, but I don't think they need anybody like that. And yet the need is always uh, there and to consider it uh, for uh, our own lives as we look at this uh, this uh, subject of deacons here uh, in, in uh, this, this chapter. Well, all of this we're told in verse 5. It pleased uh, the whole multitude. So they chose Stephen, uh, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, uh, Philip, Prochorus, uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and uh, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And so they chose uh, these seven who met that require, requirement, spiritual requirements. All seven of the names of these men are Hellenistic. And it just the, the grace of that, the leadership in the early church, and the mature attitude of the Jerusalem church to say, here we have a problem where legitimately um, the Hellenistic widows have been neglected and they chose all Hellenistic all Jewish men with Hellenistic names, presumably from a Hellenistic background, now to take care of this problem and puts them into um, that, uh, that kind of place. The generosity of it, the wisdom of it is beautiful. They weren't forced into it. Nobody put a campaign on and said, um, you know, and, and we want this fixed and we only want Hellenistic uh, deacons to do this. That's our demand. And none of that goes going on. The Holy Spirit did it. The maturity of the body of Christ saw the need for what it was, that this was the best way to handle it. And, and they did. And they were prayed for then publicly, publicly acknowledged as, as being responsible for this distribution. And, uh, and people, so people would recognize the authority had been given to them. Now notice what this, just this little uh, addition of uh, structure or organization uh, accomplished for uh, in that, that early church. Then the word of God spread. Well, what if, what if the apostles hadn't given themselves to the study uh, ministry of the word and prayer? Oh, there wouldn't be, be none of this. They'd say they got so buried um, that they started um, using AI to put their sermons together. Boy, I am so glad I am closer to heaven than not. If I ever found out that anyone I respect and listen to, and I listen to a lot of people in the body of Christ because I need to be washed by the word all of the time, that they are using AI sermons or anybody else's sermons, forget about it. 
And so the word of God had spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So it all could continue now, only with this, this problem resolved and a great many of the priests uh, were obedient to uh, the faith. Everybody got to stay within their calling, the calling that God was blessing by this addition of uh, the office of a deacon in that early church. And so um, this time of, of growth and expansion in the early church, it, it is a, 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 it's not a time to change what is working and what God is blessing, uh, but uh, to maintain proper priorities in order to uh, maintain the effectiveness of what is, is happening and, and to do what we see them having done here. Then the focus narrows down to Stephen. Stephen, one of the deacons here, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So in the book of Acts up to this point, we just see signs and wonders being accomplished through the apostles. We, uh, we don't say that they were only being accomplished through the apostles, maybe through others as well, but this is the first record of it um, moving uh, beyond them. And Stephen has this, uh, he has this faith, he has this power, he's doing uh, great wonders and signs among the people. We'll see in a moment that the signs and wonders are associated with him uh, preaching Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah to Jews in Jerusalem laying a case for Jesus as the Messiah from their, the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, and then God confirming that message with these, uh, these signs um, and these uh, wonders. And so, obviously, if you're going to be preaching and you're going to have this kind of dynamic around your life, you're going to uh, get the attention of the religious establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem in the same way that Jesus did. And there arose some f uh, from what is called the synagogue of uh, the freedmen, uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. There's some who believe that Stephen went into the various synagogues within Jerusalem. A synagogue was very much like what a local church is for us as Christians. It was a place to hear the word, a place to uh, pray. It was a place to also uh, uh, discuss the Scriptures and to interpret the Scriptures. And so perhaps he went into these various uh, synagogues, raised questions related to Jesus as, as the Messiah. That may be the case. I'm more inclined to believe that he was sharing about Jesus and preaching Jesus on the streets of, of Jerusalem. And then these other men from these various synagogues, and specifically the synagogue of the freedmen, took notice of him and then engaged him in discussions related to what it is that he's doing in, in preaching Jesus um, as uh, the Christ. And so God uses him. He's faithful as a deacon. And then now uh, God enlarges his ministry here in terms of, uh, of evangelism and, and the gift of miracles and, and so forth. As somebody said, it, it, very quaint and, and uh, beautiful concerning uh, Stephen, uh, he had a heart not only for the pantry, but also the pulpit. And so uh, that, that's there as well. So he took care of the physical needs in the church, but a longing to reach people with 
uh, with uh, the gospel. And so God is confirming that, that message. And so a dispute occurs, and uh, the dispute, the word that is used for dispute here, uh, it means to seek or to examine together and signifies to discuss. So clearly these uh, men of the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, they disagreed with Stephen's interpretation of the Scriptures and as, a, as an evidence of Jesus as the Messiah. And, uh, and so the discussion uh, began. These disputers in verse 9 who were disputing with, um, with Stephen here, they were kind of the theological brainiacs of their uh, day. Uh, in Alexandria, here are Jews from Alexandria in Jerusalem at this time. Alexandria was the center for learning in the ancient world. It had a huge Jewish uh, population uh, there. And, uh, and they would then make that short trip from Alexandria in Egypt up into Jerusalem on a regular basis. And the synagogue that they would attend in Jerusalem would be this synagogue of, of the freedmen. And, and so this was the synagogue of all of the, the prominent and, uh, Jews from the entire Mediterranean uh, uh, region. And so here you've got the smartest, the most highly educated uh, Jews uh, in the whole world, and they're coming up against a mere deacon in the early church. We're doomed. They're going to squash him like a bug. But that's not what happens here uh, at all. And certainly, and the whole reason is because here you have this deacon who has these uh, these qualifications for deacon. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has a knowledge of, of the Scriptures, knows the Bible. He uses his Bible to uh, give evidence for Jesus as, as the Messiah. And you notice the effect of these discussions. Uh, the the uh, upside of it is they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which um, he uh, spoke. So in all of these theological discussions, he got the best of them. Uh, every single time, they couldn't find a single fault with his case that he laid for Jesus as the Messiah, not from the New Testament, it didn't exist yet, but from the Old Testament Scriptures. And uh, in these discussions, of course, Stephen is using that Word of God to uh, bring forth Christ in that way. One of the fascinating things about uh, all of this is the mention of the fact that among these disputers were those from Cilicia in verse 9. And Cilicia was a, it was a region uh, uh, that had a, uh, a city in it called Tarsus, the home of Saul of Tarsus, who would ultimately become the Apostle Paul. And, and uh, Saul of Tarsus, ultimately to become the Apostle Paul, he is obviously present at this scene and, and, and a part of these discussions. He is certainly present at the scene of the stoning of Stephen, which happens subsequent to this in, uh, in the next uh, chapters we'll look at um, next time because we're told there that they, those that stoned Stephen laid their garments down at the feet of Saul. And so Saul, uh, Saul or Paul probably among those who had been bested by Stephen in his disputes with him. 
And I'm convinced that Paul or Saul never forgot it. I think that that case for Jesus as the Messiah from the Scriptures, that even Saul of Tarsus, learned at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish rabbi at that time, that he could not penetrate those arguments or move him from it. He never, ever forgot that. And those biblical arguments that, and case that, uh, that Stephen laid out, that began to work on Saul of Tarsus until finally he breaks on the road to Damascus and surrenders to the Lord as, as well. The, the, and we'll see it in the upcoming chapters, we should never look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and where he then becomes a Christian and ultimately uh, the Apostle Paul as an instant conversion, a conversion that just happened in that moment on the sea, uh, on that road to Damascus. Conversion occurred in that moment, but there's a long history of that before. You think about the Apostle Paul, one of the great intellects, even recognized by secular people as one of the great intellects in, in human history. And as he left these discussions with Stephen, and Stephen going to be dead by the end of chapter 7, and all of that is working in his mind. And if you have a mind like that, you work it over, and you work it over, and you work it over, and you work it over day, and you work it over night, and you look for some weakness that allows you to disregard what you've heard. And even Saul of Tarsus could not find a weakness, not just at the moment, but for months afterwards in the case that Stephen had laid out. And it would take Saul of Tarsus a little while before he would be honest enough, a lot of honesty in his own heart going on, but honest enough to communicate it outwardly. When you rock somebody's world spiritually, and Saul of Tarsus has invested his entire life into an understanding of Judaism that rejects Jesus as Messiah, and you discover that you have been misguided, and you can't put an arrow in the heart of that, that, uh, that case, uh, that can take you a while uh, to digest and then become honest about in your own life. And ultimately, though, uh, that uh, he, he does. Well, when you hear as you, uh, all of this is going on, uh, when they're unable to um, shoot Stephen down or to convert Stephen based upon legitimate discussion and uh, theological discussion, they then turned to uh, the things that we are so familiar with in terms of what the Jewish religious leaders turned to in condemning Jesus, because they could find no fault in him, and yet it didn't mean they were done with him. And so then they secretly induced men uh, to lie and to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, that is the law of Moses, and against God. Both of those would be blasphemies, under the law of Moses, punishable by death, they are looking to kill Stephen at this point. I mean, <laughs> they've gone from 
what appeared to be an honest discussion at one moment uh, to uh, uh, really turning vicious fast. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him. I mean, imagine it. Come down on him. They seized him, and they brought him to the council before the Sanhedrin, uh, the religious council of the Jews. And there, in that environment now, they do the same thing again. They also set up false witnesses and said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered uh, to us. And so they bring those accusations against Stephen uh, there. All of them a lie. All of them uh, false. And then verse 15, a beautiful, beautiful uh, portrait. I don't know if Rembrandt painted it. I'll have to go home and Google if any great painter captured this scene somewhere. And all who sat in the council uh, looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. I mean, that's how you and I respond when people accuse us falsely and lay hands on us and falsely arrest us. If you ever see me in that circumstance, you'll look over and say, look at Damien, he's, he's got the face of an angel. No bulging veins in his neck or forehead or anything like that. He so reminds me of Stephen. And so the case is laid against Stephen. It's a, a, judicial, a, a religious court. And so what happens in every courtroom? The charges are made against the accused, and everybody in the room turns to the accused to see how he's going to answer these accusations. And that brings us into chapter 7, which God willing, we'll look at, um, at, at next time. And so here he is, the picture of peace in the middle of this you know, when you know you're right with God, everything else is secondary. And uh, Stephen knows that he is right with God. And as the old saying goes, facts are stubborn things. And the most stubborn facts of all are biblical facts. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, they had done nothing to concern him concerning his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so when we realize that these kind of reactions means there's um, conviction, uh, there's a, a sense of Jesus being a threat to a religious uh, interpretation of a religious institution uh, that is not representing God anymore. We can realize this is a good thing that is happening and, and be at peace uh, in the middle of it. When we're on the winning side, um, it's important uh, to act like it. He had won all of those discussions, and he knew it. He had been faithful to God. He was winning in this situation, and he just simply uh, acted in that way and, and had that countenance upon his face as a result. Something to aim for, the face of an angel in the, in the face of, of false accusation and these same kind of things that were used against Jesus in uh, rejecting uh, him. Let's stand together. And we'll close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this passage. And
kind of little truths and these little nuggets that are important to be in our understanding of you, of our own lives, priorities in our own lives, staying focused upon your calling and your gifting in our lives, whatever that calling and that gifting might be. And Lord, the table that you have set here in this chapter for what comes next. We thank you for Stephen. We thank you for the ministry that you gave to him and what we learn from him. We pray for our own lives as we are in a nation that is growing more and more hostile um, to our faith um, in the same way that uh, Stephen faced it. Help us, Lord, to learn from this and to not strive with people, not to be angry, not to repay evil for evil or bulging veins for bulging veins, but um, to realize that the truth, your truth, is a, a powerful thing and to just leave people with it and to maintain our Christian witness through all of it. And we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.